Good morning. Good morning. There we go, much better. If you're wondering, have the wheels come off? I'm not wearing a tie this morning, and I've got about half my number of notes. No, the wheels are not coming off. We are celebrating something special here this morning, uh, and that is baptism. And we want to spare some time, or save some time, make time, uh, to hear what God has been doing in our baptism candidates uh, this morning. So we're going to be looking uh, this morning at our text in Romans 6, 1 through 10, which discusses baptism and gives us an insight into what we're doing here this morning. So I'll ask you to turn there, uh, turn to Romans 6, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. Uh, And then as is our custom, and then I'll ask you to stand as we read God's word. Romans 6, 1 through 10, and these are the words of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And may God bless the reading of his infallible and inerrant word. So this morning, as I mentioned, many of you are visiting here this morning because of baptism, and it is indeed a morning to celebrate. We've had, uh, this is actually our third such service where we've uh, had baptism, uh, and we often, as elders, we often pray that we would, that God would just keep us out of the way, that he would send who he sends, and that we'd uh, be able to minister to who we minister, he would send the right people, we'd be able to minister to people, and it has been a joy to see people coming in. Uh, and and taking the step of baptism. Last week we had a number of young families come up with their young children and pledge commission uh, in front of the church to raise these children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And these are all important and healthy steps towards building uh, a healthy church culture and a healthy church community. And this morning certainly follows in that pattern as we have six among us here this morning who are ready to take the step of baptism. And this is a diverse group of people. There's a number of backgrounds behind our candidates here this morning, but they all are going to share in one common sacrament or ordinance or symbol, and that is baptism. And not only are they going to do this together with each other on the same morning, but in doing this, they're also joining everyone else in this building who has been baptized. Most importantly, in getting baptized, they are showing their unity in Christ, and that's what this passage was about. And Jesus Christ and his life, death, resurrection, ascension, and his final coming, that's truly the north star. When we think about baptism, that's really true north that we need to think about. What is this about? It is about our union with Christ. And despite different 
streams of the church having different practices surrounding baptism, uh, we also want to acknowledge that God's kingdom is wide, God's kingdom is big, uh, and so we, we grant for different practices among different Christians. But the substance of baptism, properly understood, is a universal Christian symbol that unites all Christians across the globe and across all of church history. When we are baptized, we are showing union not just with our brothers and sisters in China and Kenya and Argentina today, but we are also showing our union with Christians from the 4th century and the 1st century and the 12th century. There is true union in Christ both across the globe and across the timeline. And we all share in this ritual because we all share in the Christ who commanded us to go through this step. And to lay the context for what we had just read earlier uh, in in Romans chapter 5, Paul has just walked through the history of humanity. And he tells a story about two heads of the human race. The first one being Adam and the second one being Jesus Christ. And very This runs very contrary to our common conceptions that we are surrounded with around individuality and everyone's form of self-expression and and overflowing with their own self-love and so forth. The Bible doesn't describe the world that way because that's not the way the world is. We are not isolated babies. We are in covenant community somehow or another. These covenant communities can be very small, like a husband and wife and their children. But if we zoom out... Paul distills the whole world down into two groups of people. And there are only two groups of people, ultimately, those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. But in both cases, both groups of people are represented by a covenant head, by someone who represents the whole group. He goes to God and represents those who are in that group. And so everyone in this room, whether you're aware of it or not, everyone in this room, everyone you know, every person who has ever lived on this planet is represented either by Adam or by Christ. And there are no alternatives. There is no third way. You fall in a column under one of those two heads of humanity. And so in Romans 5, Paul has told us that the first group, those who are in Adam, have remained in Adam. And when Adam and Eve fell, all of humanity fell with them. They were repre- we were represented by our first parents, by Adam and Eve. And Adam represented his children well when he disobeyed God. We would have done no different. And we were all there in Adam's loins when this happened. And so we all show up on this planet with a corrupt, sinful nature that we have inherited from our first parents. And that nature works itself out as children grow up and they express that sinful nature more and more and more. And it gets more sophisticated. They're being who they are. This is how we showed up on this planet. Sons and daughters of Adam were fallen by our nature. And we are in need of a radical rescue operation. And Paul contrasts those who are in Adam to the second family that is formed under the headship of Jesus Christ. Christ is the other head of humanity. And he's called the second Adam in the Bible. And this is because he, like the first Adam, was given a test. And where the first Adam failed, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, passed. And he earned his father's approval. And so now all those who are joined in Jesus Christ are represented by him. Which is how God can say that we are righteous, even when our actions don't always demonstrate that. So, if you are a living, breathing human here this morning, I want to... Be clear, again, you are represented by one of these two men. 
We are not individuals in the sense that we have no representation. Uh, we do. We are either in Adam's family or in Christ's. And to be in Adam's family is the natural default setting. That's how we show up here. But to be in Christ's family means that a change must happen in us. We have to be adopted into this family. And in this adoption process, we are given a new name and a new nature. When a child is adopted into a family, he takes on the family's name. And at our conversion, the same thing happens. We are given a new name. We're called Christian. We take on the family name of our father and our older brother. And this is all by the grace of God. It is all gift. It is all grace. It is free grace. And so this is why Paul ends chapter 5 by emphasizing the freedom of God's grace. And Paul knows, Paul anticipates objections. He's going to say, well, if this is all of grace, then people are going to start to say, well, then I may as well just keep sinning, right? This is a great arrangement. God loves being gracious. I love sinning. This is a match made in heaven. And, and, and that Paul anticipates that kind of a question is going to come. And so he starts chapter 6 anticipating and heading off that objection. He says, well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And notice how he answers. Okay? In Greek, they don't have underlining, they don't have exclamation marks, but they do have their own idioms. And this is the strongest possible way Paul could answer this question. By no means. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And so the answer comes back in the strongest possible terms. By no means. This is actually impossible. Paul's not saying, notice what he doesn't do. Paul's not standing back, and this is so common in our culture, right? Uh, we, we emphasize grace, and what do, how do we treat grace? It's easy to treat grace as though it's something where God has kind of lowered the bar now, right? The standard of the Old Testament was here, and grace means now the standard is here, and more of us can jump over the bar of God's judgment. Absolutely not. If anything, Jesus has made the standard more impossible. If Moses condemned adultery, Jesus condemns looking at a woman with lust. With lust. Okay? The test gets higher. It gets more difficult. It's harder to pass. It's impossible, actually, to pass on our own strength. So this is not what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying, well, grace has lowered the bar, and so sin isn't really a big deal, and just you know, try your best and, and keep marching on. He's not saying that. But he's also not threatening Christians with hellfire and brimstone. Okay? If you're a Christian, he's not saying, oh, but you might lose your salvation if you start to sin. What he's saying here is, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is a different kind of argument. Because it's saying that the old person who used to be in Adam has now been transferred to Christ, and so he has a new desire, a new nature, new desires, new life in him or her. And so the power of sin has been broken, and it no longer rules. It would make absolutely no sense for someone who has tasted the grace of God to still be ruled by sin. And notice this distinction closely, please. Sometimes we talk about reigning sin and remaining sin. Reigning sin is for the unbeliever. They, they can't not sin. The, the old desires have not been addressed. And so we, before our conversion, we have to follow the fallen desires of our hearts. So there's no way for uh, an unbelieving person who's not in Christ to stop sinning. We're ruled by it. And yes, Christians continue to struggle with sin because the old nature doesn't die without kicking a little bit, right? So that is the Christian life, is putting that old man finally uh, to death. 
but it takes some work. And so this work isn't finished until our death. So the new life is a life of slowly but surely putting the reminders of the old man to death and watching the new man or woman come up to life. Sin remains, but it no longer rules. Or another way to say this is that death, right, until death, sin is present, but it's no longer president. Okay? Yes, it may be there. Yes, you will still struggle with sin. But it's ruling nature. Its demands on you as a person are over. It has been broken. You are a new creation. And he goes on in verse 3 and 4. Do you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so the transfer from Adam's family into Christ's family is symbolized by baptism. What we're doing here this morning is not magical. Okay? Nothing magical is going to happen. Something symbolically significant and weighty and real is going to happen, however. To leave Adam's family, the old man must die. And to enter Christ's family, the new man must be raised up. And this is exactly what baptism pictures so beautifully. Our practice here, and again we grant Christians have practiced this differently, so we're not trying to be schismatic here, but explain our own practice. So baptism by immersion pictures the old nature in Adam going down in death and the new nature in Christ coming up to eternal life. And water is the perfect medium for this to happen. If you know some of your Old Testament stories, I challenge you to let's think through some of these. The way water is used in the Old Testament, in the stories of what God is doing. Water is frequently used as judgment. God often uses water to harm and to kill and to judge. For example, in the days of Noah, God destroyed the whole world with a flood. When Pharaoh pursues the Israelites, him and his army are overcome by water. And Jonah, when he runs from God, when he is disobeying God, he is cast into an angry sea in God's judgment. So it's fitting, it's suiting in the biblical conception of things that we symbolize the death of the old Adamic nature by lowering people into a grave of water. Just as God judged Christ at the cross, so he is judging our sins and putting them to death through the judgment uh, that is found in the water. But then something miraculous happens. It's going to be the exact same person coming out of the water that went down into it. Okay? Your name, you know, your, your, your height won't change. Your hair color won't change. Your eye colors won't change. It's going to be the same person coming out. And yet, symbolically, something significant has happened. A new nature is coming out of the water, symbolically. Water washes and cleans as well in Scripture. Think Again, more of this biblical picture of the way water is used. Water accompanies uh, new life. Jesus talks about living water. The, the streams of God's blessing are often described in terms of water and streams. Think about this when a new baby is born physically, when they enter the world, it is accompanied by water. And so water also gives life and nourishes. And amazingly, in all the stories that I just mentioned, water is also giving life just as well as it is condemning death. It is an usher of life as well as an usher of death. So go back to those stories. Yes, the water killed in Noah's day, but Noah's family was kept safe inside an ark in that same water. 
It was the passage to new life, to a new creation after the flood. Jonah was brought back. He was brought back from the deep out of the water to new life, to obedience, to Christ, to do what God had finally commanded him. And lastly, Moses and the people, yes, they drowned, the water drowned Pharaoh and his army, but it's that same water that Moses and the Israelites passed through to safety, to the other side. And so water baptism serves as both a grave of death and as a cradle of new life. Both things are real. Both things are true. And so when we are baptized, Romans 6 verse 3 says that we are baptized into Jesus Christ. Christ descended into death and came up in new resurrected life. And we are showing that we belong to him. We are following our older brother and his footsteps when we take the step of baptism. And this is symbolic language, yes, but symbols are inevitable. Symbols help us to understand properly the world around us. And so baptism is actually a big deal. It goes on, verses 5 through, uh, through the end. It says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we no longer would be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so the symbolism works its way into a reminder that the real life work we have to do is yet ahead of us. Every day we need to be reminded and we need to be doing the work of putting the old man to death and watching the new man raised up in Christ. The Puritan John Owen has stated this well when he said that the job of every Christian, the warning here is this. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There is no third way. You will either be involved in the work of killing sin, or sin will slowly but surely be killing you. There is no other way. And all of us know from Scripture and from experience that sometimes this process is easier than at other times. And so I want to speak specifically to the six of you who are being baptized this morning. You may be on something of a spiritual high for a while after taking this step. You may feel refreshed and encouraged, and I hope you do. But this feeling will not last forever. The grind of life carries on. And so when we fight sin, this passage is reminding us that we're not fighting it as some kind of lone holdout out in the swamp somewhere. We fight as one member of this massive people of God, this massive army who is being led by Jesus Christ himself. Our older brother is leading the way, and he has put us in union with all these people, to help us and to encourage us and to admonish us and to encourage us even by their silent example sometimes that we can follow their example. So yes, we must fight sin. That is something we really must do. But we do so knowing that we are no longer ruled by it. So remember, you are dead. That old person is dead. You don't have to obey sin any longer. You don't have to obey the desires of the old nature. It no longer has dominion over you, even though it sends reminders. The old you that was a slave to sin died at your conversion. 
And today, by getting baptized, you are symbolizing that reality. The old you is gone forever. It's never coming back. That's what Jesus says. And the new you has been raised up and is in everlasting union with Jesus Christ. And that is the strength from which we fight, from which we carry on, from which we handle the difficulties that life will bring. We're not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. So in a little bit, we're going to go into the water. And by being baptized, you are also making a public profession to everyone here that you have changed allegiances, and now you belong to Christ and not to Adam. You are communicating by this step something important to the people around you. And most importantly, you're following Christ's own instructions to do this as a step of obedience. And so that's what's happening on our side, what we are communicating. But baptism also seals in a sense. God is also doing something in baptism. The symbolism works the another way as well. Christ is also communicating something to you. He's communicating something to us. God, in baptism, seals us and puts his stamp on you. He's giving you a tangible reminder that you can look back on when you're discouraged. And this is a milestone that you can always look back on and reflect when you need to be reminded of how the gospel works. Remember your baptism. The old you has gone down and the new you has come up. You're a new person. You're united to Christ forever, moving from one degree of glory to another. That's what we're doing here this morning. Why don't we pray and then we're going to hear from our baptism candidates. Father God, I want to thank you that you sent your son on a rescue operation to redeem us from what happened at the fall, to redeem us from our sinful desires, from our old corrupt nature that wants all the wrong things, that finds sin natural and enticing and rewarding. Lord, you came to break that slavery, to break those chains apart. Lord, and I pray for everyone here in this room, and I want to pray specifically for those who are coming to step forward in baptism this morning, that they would be reminded that those chains have been broken. The old nature is gone. It's gone forever. And even when it wants to twitch and send reminders and cast out, Lord, I pray that these people would fight in strength, that they would fight in newness of life, that they would know that they belong to yours, that they belong to you, that they are yours. Lord, and as they go through the valleys of life, Uh, that they would be strengthened by that, knowing that their older brother has paved the way ahead of them. Lord, and I pray for us as a church, I pray that we would be warm and that we would be uh, helpful and encouraging and lifting each other up as we struggle with sin, that we would find creative ways to, to minister to people who are struggling and who are hurting. And I pray that we would not be too proud to receive that instruction and that encouragement as well. Lord, I want to pray for each one here this morning. I pray that as these people share their testimonies, that you would also work through that. Encourage the rest of us uh, to see how you work, your many different ways of working in the lives of people and bringing people to yourself, giving new life. Lord, thank you for your kindness this morning, and I pray that you'd be with uh, each one as they come and speak. Uh, I pray that you would be glorified and that we would be strengthened. And We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.